Kyle. I'm Omer, one of the pastors here at Spark. Thanks so much for joining us today, especially considering that we're running at the same time as the Super Bowl, or as I like to call it, the annual tradition of Tom Brady versus insert opponent here. We're in the middle of our series, When a Child Asks, which tries to address questions from within our community that come up from time to time, and not just from children. These are complicated questions for which we try to offer simple, tangible responses. And we're not going for trite or easy answers here. Rather, the goal is to provide you, whether you're young or old, or young or old in the faith, with a simple, solid footing to begin with as you work through your own response to the question. The question from one of our sparkers that we're going to address today is, why do we call God He? To which, of course, the correct answer is, don't. That's all, Spark. Thanks for your time today. You can still catch some of the game if you switch browsers now. Just kidding. I don't want to be dismissive at all of such a great question, one that in many forms the church has been grappling with for a long time. And this question, why do we call God He, is really wrapped up with a whole host of questions, isn't it? Like, does God have a gender? Does one gender more fully represent God than others? If not, then why does the Bible seem to always use masculine pronouns to refer to God? Does it matter that when God became flesh, as the Gospel of John attests, that God became a man? Or that the twelve apostles that man appointed as a successor were all men? Or that church leaders throughout history have been overwhelmingly male? And maybe it's easy for you to say, they're just words, small words at that. Why does it matter what pronouns we use for God? To which I'd say words, even small ones, have power. Words don't just reflect reality. They can shape, structure, or even silence entire realities. And if you've lived anywhere in the orbit of the world's major monotheistic traditions, you can attest to the reality that even though we all seem to say God technically has no gender, you know to expect a caveat. And those caveats live inside your head, whether you want them to or not. Like, If you close your eyes and pictured the face of God, which is an expression used by Bible writers, what would you see? A man? A white man? With a beard? A white beard? Angry? An angry beard? If you're a Christian, maybe you'd say Jesus. Great, but what does Jesus look like in your mind? Without giving my kids any context, I asked them to close their eyes and picture Jesus, and then I asked them to describe what they saw. What did Jesus look like? What color was his hair or his skin? One of my five-year-olds said they pictured the Jesus from the YouTube series, Stories of the Bible. Thanks, Pastor Mark. We're all big fans in this house. My other five-year-old agreed and therefore said that she pictured Jesus with red hair. My six-year-old, again, with no context, mind you, saw through my question. He closed his eyes and said, It's hard because I know that his skin should be brown, but I keep picturing him with white skin even though I know he has brown skin. Now, we've told our kids basically from the day they were born that Jesus didn't look anything like how most people draw him. We've even told them that Jesus most likely had brown skin and black hair just like they do. And they know it intellectually. But when they close their eyes, even they can't escape the images of Jesus saturating their surrounding culture. The same thing is true with God. We all may say God is not a person and God doesn't have a gender or a race. But when we go a little deeper, we realize our words betray us. 
That's why this is an important conversation to have. It helps, first, for us to start with a premise that virtually all of us can agree on, at least in the abstract. God does not have a gender. God transcends gender. No matter what metaphors or imperfect language we use to describe the perfect and indescribable God of the universe, it helps to always start there. In fact, the very beginning of the Bible itself goes out of its way to declare that God specifically transcends gender and that people of all genders together reflect God's image. Genesis 1 says, So God created humanity in God's own image. In the image of God, God created them. Male and female, God created them. It's hard for us today to appreciate how bold this poetic statement is. Remember, these words were written against a cultural backdrop in which it was common for Israel's neighbors to worship male and female gods forged in patriarchal societies where masculinity was unquestioningly treated as superior to femininity. And here we have the God of Israel announcing that there is only one God and both men and women equally reflect that God's image. As a side note too, I don't know who needs to hear this, but we should not take this passage to mean that there are only two genders, as some modern interpreters do. These opening verses are full of poetic dualities. Parallel verses in this text describe God creating day and night and land and sea alongside male and female and other pairings. And for anyone who's experienced dawn or dusk, or marshes and estuaries, we know that day and night and land and sea are more like spectrums without hard or precise boundaries. We should think of gender in the same way. The author isn't saying here that there are only day and night or only land and sea or only land and uh, male and female. That's not the point. The point is to look at the breadth of God's creation in each of those domains and see that all of it is beautiful and ordered by God. So just know that whatever gender you are or aren't, you were made in God's image and God's image is reflected in you. Back to the main question. If God has no gender, and if the biblical, biblical narrative from the beginning has been that God transcends gender, then why does it feel like almost everybody uses masculine pronouns to describe God? Well, one of the factors we have to consider is that the Bible itself, in Hebrew and Greek, uses masculine pronouns and imagery to describe God. Even in the Genesis passages we just read that teaches us that all genders reflect the image of God, that passage nevertheless uses masculine pronouns to describe God. And we don't need to get into complicated linguistic theory to make a point that you can intuitively grasp that for long periods of time in languages all over the world, it's been common to treat masculine pronouns or imagery as the default and to even use masculine language when you're referring to mixed gender groups. And that's not just when talking about God, that's even when talking about people. You'll recognize it in famous statements from the Bible, man shall not live by bread alone. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? And from statements outside the Bible, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. You may be so used to this way of talking that you don't mind it, and you understand that women are implied in those statements. But we do have to ask ourselves what it costs us to keep using men as the default when we talk about people and always implying but never explicitly acknowledging women. Is that something we just do in our language? Or do we maybe do that in society as a whole too? 
And make no mistake, it may come easy or natural for you to use masculine pronouns like that now, but someone had to teach you that. When we say all men, we mean women too. Or that when we say brethren, we mean the sistren too, or whatever the female equivalent is. Or that when people say Mr. and Mrs. Omer Akhtar, we don't actually mean that that's my wife's name too. I've had to teach my kids that for some reason in language, men can represent men and women, but it never works the other way around. The English language, thankfully, is not inherently gendered like other languages, like Hebrew, which is what Genesis and other Old Testament books are written in. In English, we actually have pronouns like they, or this person, or everyone, that are viable alternatives to always using masculine pronouns. Language evolves, and therefore Bible translations do too. So just because we've always settled for saying something one way doesn't mean we have to keep doing it. And we're being faithful to the text when we're willing to revisit translations based on shifts in language. Another reason we've historically attached masculine language to God is because of the prominent masculine images associated with God in the Bible. Bible writers frequently describe God as a king or the true king of Israel. God is also often characterized as a father or a husband. And that's great, of course. But remember, these are images and metaphors. And it's important to remember that they're not the only images and metaphors that the Bible provides us about God. As we've talked about at Spark before, lots of times throughout scripture, Bible writers use feminine imagery to describe who God is or what God is doing in the world. The prophet Isaiah describes God creating and protecting Israel as a birth process. God is in labor, delivering Israel. There are poems in the Old Testament that talk about God creating the mountains and oceans as a birthing process. Sometimes writers say God comforts Israel the way a mother comforts her child. Sometimes Psalms describe God as a midwife. Parts of the Psalms in the Torah describe God as a nursing mother of Israel. Sometimes an author will equate God with a mother eagle, protecting her chicks, or for Hosea, a mother bear, protecting her cubs, or a mother lion, protecting her cubs. Jesus describes himself as a mother hen wishing he could gather all the Israelites in the center and on the margins under his wings. And the Apostle Paul describes his own apostolic work in caring for the church in Galatia as a mother giving birth to a child. These uses of feminine imagery, again, are all the more striking considering just how patriarchal the surrounding culture was when these texts were written. So absolutely, let's keep the Lord's Prayer, which begins Our Father in Heaven, as we pray together every Sunday as Christians have since the time of Jesus himself. But at the same time, let's not discourage each other from praying to our Mother in Heaven either. Another consideration that often comes up in these discussions is that Although God has no gender, for those of us who believe that Jesus is God incarnate, Jesus certainly had a gender. The writer of Hebrews goes so far as to say that Jesus is the fullest, clearest representation of who God is. But it's important not to take that representation in direction the authors never meant to. Jesus is the fullest revelation of God's spirit or God's essence or God's character. Yes, it's significant that Jesus was a man and that he was, a, and he was Jewish and that he apparently had ripped abs, but that doesn't tell us anything about God's gender any more than it tells us about God's ethnicity or God's ab routine. And the same goes for Jesus choosing all men as the 12 apostles. 
That selection has so much to do with specific context in which God enters the human drama in Israel's story. Jesus sees himself as the Messiah, the long-awaited king like David, who will reign on the throne forever and reestablish the prominence of the 12 tribes of Israel represented by the 12 sons of Jacob in Israel's backstory. Jesus is drawing careful parallels to Israel's history. And let's not forget, either, that Jesus had plenty of female disciples. Junia was a noteworthy apostle. Priscilla was a prominent teacher. Yodia and Syntyche were preachers. Phoebe was a deacon. Philip had four daughters who were prophets, and I could go on. So when you look back at church history and see that its leaders have been overwhelmingly male, that says more about us recasting Jesus and God in our own image with our own biases than it does about who God and Jesus are and how they want the world to be. It's also worth calling out at this point that there have been notable modern examples of works that try to push us toward more inclusive language. And the pushback those works have received, again, tell us more about our own shortcomings than they do about God. Some of you may recall the highly popular book from several years ago called The Shack. The book upset many self-appointed protectors of Christian orthodoxy for many reasons, one of which was because God appears to the main character in the form of a black woman. And of course, we can't have that. It was hilarious to me how many preachers were so offended by that portrayal, but had never once objected to, you know, the millions of depictions of God as a white man everywhere in our culture. Some of you may also recall in the early 2000s when the Bible committee that produces the New International Version came out with a new translation, the Today's New International Version, or TNIV. The TNIV made a list of changes, but the highest profile one was that it was the first ever attempt by a major Bible translator to use gender-neutral language consistent with recent updates in English language. Mind you, they didn't even touch the masculine pronouns used for God. All they did was take the times when a masculine pronoun or word was used in reference to a mixed gender group and use a gender-neutral word instead. You know, like changing sons of God to children of God when it's obvious that the author wasn't talking about just men. For this, they were accused of wanting to obliterate gender differences and create an androgynous society, naturally. They got so much hate for those changes that they discontinued the translation and walked back almost all of those changes when they released an updated NIV translation a few years later. That's how much as a culture we're all invested in the status quo. And if you still think pronouns are just little words that don't matter, then ask yourself why so many people get so upset whenever followers of Jesus try to use more gender-accurate language whenever we talk about God and God's people. So let's bring it all together. Am I saying that you can't use masculine pronouns or images when you talk about God or that you have to use gender-neutral language in those cases? No. All I ask is that when you do, be mindful of the impact that those choices may have on your own conception of God. In what ways might the words you use to describe God skew or bias how you think about God? In what ways might those choices put God in boxes that God wants to break out of? In what ways do those choices put people in boxes and make them feel less close to God? How might your word choices about God cause unnecessary friction when you talk about God with other people? 
And if you want to keep using masculine language to describe God, would you consider throwing in some feminine language in there too some of the time? Calling on Mother God to help her people? And if that recommendation makes you uncomfortable, I'd ask you to interrogate why exactly that makes you uncomfortable. Perhaps that discomfort tells you more about yourself and your assumptions about gender than it tells you anything about God. And lastly, if you do want to start using gender-neutral language to describe God, that's great. You're actually not even being gender-neutral, you're being gender-accurate. God is not male or female, so doesn't it seem fitting that in modern English, God's pronouns should match? And I realize that it may seem daunting to make the change. Using gendered language for God is a tough habit to break. You've likely been doing it your whole life, and every Bible you currently read probably reinforces that. But it's definitely possible to make that shift. Around a couple years ago, I decided that I was going to stop exclusively using masculine pronouns to describe God. It took mindfulness and effort, and it was definitely hard to be consistent about it 100% of the time. But sure enough, over time, my language evolved to the point where it became my default to use gender-neutral pronouns to describe God because I finally stopped thinking of God as a man. Give it a try and see what happens. You can replace he, him, his with they, them, their. Uh, but maybe that might sound just a little too polytheistic for a good monotheist. That's fine. So don't do that. You can try just saying God in place of the pronouns instead. Try it when you pray. For song and prayer leaders, try it doing church. See what happens. And most importantly, please, let's keep talking about God and describing God to each other. When Paul preached the good news to a group of philosophers in an Athenian marketplace, he affirmed some of their God talk when he quoted a couple of their own philosopher and poets who said, quote, God is not very far from any of us, for in God we live and move and have our being, and we are God's offspring. All of us have the power to use our words to help each other draw even closer to this God and feel more like God's children every day. We've now reached our time together where we all, all God's children, come together to celebrate Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection as the unifying force that ties all of us together across all genders or races or tribes. We do this by keeping the tradition established from the beginning, as the scriptures say, in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples saying, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them saying, drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me.